This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I've seen a child in two weeks go from a, a mute, inattentive, non-connected child spitting on a wall to those rivers of saliva running down the wall to two or three weeks later coming in, having eye contact, speaking and connecting. One of the greatest, I guess, benefits that as naturopaths and nutritionists we have to really bring to the table for children with ADHD is our systems-based approach. Give it six to 12 months, you will see the changes. So functional medicine is, I call it, it's like a marathon. It's not a sprint. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode, we look at behavioural disorders in children and specifically hone in on ADHD. We talk to Dr. Frank Golick, an integrative GP focusing on family medicine, integrative GP Dr. Eileen Ismail and Melbourne naturopath Keone Moore. Dr. Frank Golick has been a family physician for over 40 years and he's seen it all when it comes to children's behaviours. So many children have um, diverse diverse um, issues. Meltdowns, of course, are probably the most troubling um, to parents. It's not just tantrums. They're, they're major meltdowns where the child really, really goes berserk. They have oppositional defiant disorder often. A lot of them have OCD, opposition, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Some certainly will have worrying tics disorder, plus or minus swearing, which can be a Tourette's issue. Some will run away, escape, which is really frightening if they really actually escape from their their property. Commonly the ASD kids will have stimming, flapping, repetitive actions, poor social interaction and disengagement. So um, other things that can be problematic um, in a behavioural sense, especially with other children, biting either themselves or others, hitting, pushing, aggression, other forms of self-harm, cutting, crying distress in pain, skill refusal, disruptive classroom behaviour, stealing, lying. Some of them, the older ones, can be in gangs, of course, sexual abuse, gaming, addiction, internet addiction, pornography. So they're, they're problematic things. A lot of the children can have high anxiety, plus or minus depression, separation anxiety, suicidal attempts, Fecal probing, smearing, head banging, sleep disturbance, night terrors, bullying, food refusal, 
paranoid delusions about food. Dr Golick says these behaviours are common in many diagnosed conditions. So a typical thing would be ASD plus perhaps some panda situation plus or minus pyroluria. Of course, that brings in a lot of sensory issues. They can be very violent as well, so violent outbursts. Um, they can have volcanic eruptions of anger, uh, and it's quite prolonged as well. It's not short. And so they can rage and they'll have huge anxieties and phobias, that sort of thing as well. So if you've got disturbance of the gut and the brain, um, these, these kids are really wired and fired. If you've got um, pain in the bowel and you've got inflamed brain, the microglia is on, on alert, they're, they're, they're really disturbed. And then you've got, even got the oxalates. Oxalates cause a lot of um, behavioural issues, sleep disturbance, um, not only just the irritation of the bladder or the bowel, but they have mood issues as well, a lot of mitochondrial dysfunction as well and so forth. And then you've got foods. And so even foods can disturb a, a non-diagnosed patient. So children can be quite disturbed by either gluten or dairy, soy, maize, additives, dyes, etc. So food can be a big trigger. Um, and I think about also electromagnetic frequencies, you know, being on screen time all the time. These children are very disturbed by that. Apart from the blue light on screens affecting melatonin, it can really send them into a, a frenzy. They're getting major reward centre stimulation um, by screens as well as other things which provoke uh, abnormal behaviour. So let's say you've got a child who comes in with, as you mentioned before, the combination of ASD, pyrourea, and these, you know, volcanic style eruptions and anxiety and a phobia. Where do you do you start with the food and the, and that the, the lifestyle and then do testing, or, or how do you approach that case? My foundational thing I say to everyone: we've got to get the food right for that child. Now, food is getting more and more complex, so we're getting weird things that um, can react fringy type things like latex foods or histamine foods, histamine releasing foods, DAO inhibiting food. Um, so they're, they're not common, but they're, they're there as a possibility. But then you've just got our normal things of, of all the sugars, of all the chemical additives, preservatives, all these things can be disturbing. So I think getting the right foods, I'd go for a low or virtually no grain diet. I think grains can be often inflammatory. I certainly go gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, maize-free initially, and sugar-free, and also low fructose. So my biggest concern with sugars is actually fructose in the sweet fruits and excessive root vegetables and so forth. So trying to get that sort of bedding first. I've seen a child in two weeks go from a a mute, inattentive, non-connected child spitting on a wall to those rivers of saliva running down the wall to two or three weeks later coming in, having eye contact, speaking and connecting. And just that's just so thrilling when you see a reaction like that. Now, that's rare. <laughs> I wish that was common, but that is rare. But it just shows how dramatic food changes. And I've had many other instances of autism kids uh, with two or three weeks, just taking away certain things. I had a mother in yesterday with a beautiful boy, um, but uh, the teachers weren't observing this child in the class and there was birthday cakes involved and um, she could tell straight away 
after eating some of that birthday cake, off, it could have been on the floor, wherever, um, that child was biting another child and normally wouldn't do that. Um, so food can have an incredibly powerful effect on these children and it's underestimated what that does. And I think a lot of people, when they come initially with a very distressed child, want a simple answer. There is no simple idea that just, or a supplement that just fixes these children. It's a very complex thing that we have to tease out all the problems. So I do a lot of testing, blood tests, organic acid tests. or um, the, One of the most important things is to grow their gut flora because we often see a lot of streptococcus, enterococcus, um, a lot of candida. They often have parasites, not always, but they can do. Um, so there's a lot of disturbance in their gut microbiome. So the number one thing, first of all, gets the right diet for that child. Some, of course, react to salicylates or amines, uh, glutamates, a whole lot of other things that they can react to. So we have to tease those out and find the things that suits that child with the food. So that's the bedrock. And then the next thing is to heal and seal the gut wall. So important. If their, their gut wall is um, leaky, increased intestinal permeability, um, that's going to cause a, a leakiness of the blood-brain barrier as well. So the, the gut and the brain interconnection, as everyone knows, is extraordinarily important. And then we've got to correct the gut flora. And so that's a painstaking thing at times, and sometimes it's a lifetime thing. Trying to get their E. coli up, also correcting their digestion is incredibly important. So most of these kids have low stomach acid because they don't have zinc, they don't have enough active B6, B5P, um, and they need thiamine as well to make hydrochloric acid. And if you don't have a pH of 1 to 2 in your stomach, your whole digestion is up the creek. A lot of people say, oh, we run digestive enzymes. I said, yes, that's nice, but it won't do it. If you don't have hydrochloric acid, you will not correct the gut flora. You must have that stomach acid. That sends through CCK to the pancreas and the bile ducts to produce this pancreatic enzymes with the bicarb to turn into the small intestine to a pH of 8. So you must be then very strongly alkaline for all those pancreatic enzymes to work properly. You must get the bile flowing. Otherwise, you'll see those pale floaty stools because they're not getting bile, they're not getting lipases from their pancreas. So getting all those fundamental, non-sexy things corrected first, I think is fundamentally important. A lot of people want to jump over that difficult area because it's a, a war in the trenches to to change these children's diet. They will fight you tooth and nail sometimes. And parents are already worn down and tired and it takes a lot of strength and courage to keep calm and resolute. And they've got to see both parents on the same page, just saying, come on, Johnny, this is where we're going. Um, this is going to be the best food for you. Okay, so we want them to, to understand the children are smart children. They understand in adult language. Um, where you're going, but they have to have a rationale, a reason. And so, you know, I often say to little boys particularly, you know, this is something that will make you stronger, bigger and smarter. And so I said, we eat smart food here that's going to help your body, incredibly important. And then the first nutrients that I'm going to introduce, of course, is zinc. Now, zinc's so fundamentally important. I've rarely seen a child even close to being normal range of their zinc. So plasma zinc level should be around 20, 20 plus. Not below that. We'll never get anywhere unless we do. We often have to use transdermal zinc sulfate to get that in as well as zinc picolinate to get it in through the gut. 
But if you've got a low stomach acid, you're not going to absorb any minerals properly. So most of them are low in iron and zinc and magnesium, etc., often iodine and so forth. So testing all these things is terribly important. I will always test for streptococcal autoimmune antibodies, ASO, and anti-DNAs B. Um, I, I check homocysteine. That gives me a fairly rough idea of how things are going. I don't always check for methylation standing. 98% of these autism kids, spectrum kids, are going to be under methylators. We know that for sure. And we certainly check for pyrroles. That's an important thing to find out early on as well. Um, the organic acid test can tell you if there's an excess oxalates as well. Um, it also shows some indications of mitochondrial dysfunction, which so many have. Um, also, ALT, AST, and your liver function test, if that ratio is greater than two, will be an indice um, that this mitochondrial dysfunction often have um, derangement of their plasma amino acids. So that's quite a common issue as well. So they're um, just the simple things that we start with. How much do you supplement zinc? How high do you go in some of these kids? It's almost like a sinkhole when you're putting zinc into these children. Very, very occasionally, one child will get their zinc up quite high. I've seen it even go up to 30s um, very quickly within a few months. That's extraordinarily rare. So some of them are taking almost years to get up to 18 or, or 15. Um, so it's very hard. So I, I use quite extraordinary amounts of um, zinc cream and um, zinc picolinate. So in a, a medium-sized child, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to use 80 to 90 milligrams elemental zinc in, in the picolinate form. The only thing I'm always measuring the copper as well. So we're doing serum copper with, um, and we're measuring the free copper as well. Uh, so I find sometimes the copper level might get down to a little normal level around 14, but uh, I've never seen, well, rarely ever seen the free copper come down to an ideal level of less than 25%, and that's where we want it. So, you know, the Australian soil is all high in copper, so we're always fighting copper and I think that's where the big battle with zinc goes and people get despairing and pushing all this zinc in and not seeing the results sometimes. As a naturopath with four children of her own, Keone Moore is highly experienced in neurological presentations such as ADHD. Her approach is simple. Just taking a step back for a moment, one of the greatest I guess, benefits that as naturopaths and nutritionists we have to really bring to the table for children with ADHD is our systems-based approach. So, for example, iron deficiency, the symptoms of that closely represent ADHD. So you've got tired easily, irritable, impaired behaviour, learning difficulties. They've shown if a child is iron deficient that they have lower scores in their school tests. Studies have shown that correcting an iron deficiency, for example, improves achievement at school, improves concentration, learning, and IQ. So this is something where, from my perspective, it's really important not to just go straight for the diagnosis and therefore, oh, okay, in this case, I'm going to do fish oils with a focus on DHA or copa or whatever it is that your kind of preferred 
treatment is for that label, I think the most important thing that we do is actually look more holistically. If we see how common iron deficiency is in children and the constellation of symptoms are very similar, then I have no doubt that there's some children out there that have been diagnosed with ADHD that actually have an iron deficiency or perhaps with a low additive diet, most of their symptoms would uh, resolve. I'm not suggesting for a moment that ADHD as a condition doesn't exist, but there is a lot of crossover in terms of, I guess, the range of symptoms that children display and a lot of other factors that might be playing a role that are completely overlooked in the diagnostic process. How often does it happen that you you give them iron and then eventually the symptoms start resolving? Well, I have a process that I work through, which is I start with those aspects first. So I don't jump to, oh, this is my treatment for ADHD, for example. So I will do an assessment of all nutrients, uh, including vitamin D and zinc as well, because they could be playing a role. I might consider things like threadworm or pinworm because that makes kids mental. Uh, So I'll treat all of those things first. So if we have good nutrition, we exclude nutritional deficiencies, we clean up the diet, get food additives out, treat for threadworm if that's appropriate. I would actually say 50 to 60% of the cases that I see improve out of sight just with those things before I even start looking at any you know, I guess, diagnostic specific treatments. So just take me through what you do. So a child comes in either with or without a diagnosis of ADHD in this case, and and what what do you do first? So I'll really be looking at, I guess, a comprehensive case taking, which is certainly nothing goes past that, does it, where you're really looking through their clinical history, having a look at even things like risk of dysbiosis. Did they have proton pump inhibitors as an infant? That's more and more common these days. Uh, Did they have a lot of antibiotics, particularly under the age of three? What birth did they have? Were they breastfed? All of those things that might consider, because a lot of my focus is gut-brain axis-based. So I'm always really digging deep on those particular questions to make sure that we've got a good understanding of what's going on. But then I'll look for physical signs of iron deficiency, zinc deficiency, In cases where I really feel like deficiencies are going to be playing a big role, I might talk to the parents about how they feel about doing blood tests. Obviously, a lot of parents, you know, might hesitate at that. And, you know, I certainly don't want to send children unnecessarily for blood tests. But if this is a situation where they have an iron deficient anemia and simply correcting that is going to actually resolve their symptoms, then it's still a question that needs to be asked. Dr. Eilina Ismail is an integrative GP in Melbourne. We spoke to her in episode three about autism spectrum disorders. She is herself a mum of two children with ASD. She's seen an increase in children with ADHD. Like our other two practitioners, diet is the first thing she changes, along with addressing nutritional deficiencies. I love vitamin C. I think we are one of four mammals that can make our own vitamin C. And it's like one of the major antioxidants in our body. So antioxidants are basically things that can calm down inflammation. And in these kids, usually their brain side inflamed, their guts inflamed. Uh, even mountain goats make like five grams of vitamin C a day. And we can't, 
So that's a good one. It's just that uh, I like to spread out the vitamin C. So a lot of people take a big dose at the start and then your body can't, humans can't contain vitamin C more than three hours. So any excess will come out in your pee. So you want to do it like divided doses. You can't really test for vitamin C because the half-life is so short. Even in the old staff, it's not accurate. Um, and the other thing I like is uh, NAC, NAC or glutathione uh, because your liver makes your own natural glutathione, which is another antioxidant, but sometimes it's just not enough. If your gut's not happy, your liver's probably not happy, so then you're not making enough glutathione. And I forgot to mention sleep. Sleep is such an important thing for these kids. And some kids can't sleep. Melatonin. A lot of people worry about melatonin, but melatonin is like one of the, I think it's the most important antioxidants, anti-inflammatory you can find out there. So it's a good thing for sleep and also for inflammation. What is the impact in your experience, do you feel, of environmental toxicities, you know, environmental toxins these days? Oh, my God. We are what we eat, what we breathe what we touch and then if we can't change all these molecules and eliminate them that's when toxins start to build up in our body and they're everywhere it's crazy right heavy metals bubble mycotoxins so mycotoxins are the toxins that are produced by mold and yeast the environment we talk about pesticides organophosphate even if it comes from an organic farm, you've got to be careful because what if the organic farm was situated just beside a non-organic farm and when the non-organic farm creates the pesticides and the wind blows it over? Uh, so there's nothing 100% organic. And of course, you, you mentioned this in your own personal life, but the mould is a huge thing, isn't it? Huge, yep. And then a lot of people go into things like Lyme disease, but we find that if you address the mold first, mycotoxin, if you've been living in a wet building or you know there's anything leaking, it, it doesn't have to be thin black stuff on your windowsill because then that's really bad. It's just staying in a wet building. Or as a mom, when you are carrying your child, you yourself was exposed to mold that can then affect the baby. So that's another thing. And then there are tests you can send a urine mycotoxin test to the US, very expensive test. So sometimes we just go on symptoms and then treat it. What are you seeing in clinic? What symptoms are you seeing in clinic when, when people are affected by mold? The hyperactivity, can't concentrate, brain fog, tiredness, constipation. That's like huge because say you've got mold or yeast in your gut and you're not pooping it up, um, and you try to address it by killing it, like uh, you use uh, antifungals or antifungal like, fungal herbs, and then you're not pooping, all this is die, and then they release the toxins, and then it gets absorbed back. So you got to address the gut. So unless you're not, so I usually look at making sure they poop regular first, regularly first, daily first before you treat the fungus. And then what's the process you go through for mold removal? Obviously, obviously you have to, they have to get out of wherever they are that remove the source, but for, for them personally, how do you go about um, mold? That's hard, right? If you've bought a house, got a mortgage, 
and you need to move. That's a hard one. Uh, you look at the air, so you're going to get like a good air filter. Uh, make sure the room that the kid lives in, like you're going to make sure the mattress, change the mattress. Usually make sure it's more the rubber mattress, even the pillows, the bedding. Uh, you got to look at EMR, so electromagnetic, because that also kind of triggers the mold. Uh, so switching on the MR, getting someone to assess your house for any dirty electricity. Is this? Are you living near a, one of those big transmitter? You know, if it's like a telecommunications tower, yeah. Or if you're you have a smart meter, so the smarter your house is, the more smarter devices you have in the house. That's actually it triggers the mold. So. You want to cut down, sometimes you've got to cut down on technology. So you know all those houses now where you just say something and the lights go on? Those are the more dangerous things for mold that you need to look at. And then what about removing mold from people's bodies? Uh, I like to start off with mistatin, which is uh, and, uh, it's a fungus static, so it doesn't kill. It just electric shocks the uh, yeast in the gut. And then, uh, because you have to be careful on the low side of things, is the die-off. So if you kill the yeast too fast, they release the toxins and you're not pooping, the kid then gets lots of like Herzheimer effects, things like um, they get more hyper, uh, they get tummy pains, bloating, brain fog and all that. So they get worse. So you start on that, you've got to look at breaking down the biofilms because sometimes this, are quite smart. They have this protective sphere on them. They're going to take enzymes that can break that down. I like herbs too. I cycle herbs because sometimes this yeast get clever. After what they get resistant. So you got to like maybe a week of things like I like Jemima and Sylvester and Uva Ursi. Sorry, the pronunciation's not right. A week. And then I um, alternate with oregano and MCT oil, so that's the herbs. And then sometimes if it's really bad, fluconazole. Fluconazole is a fungicidal medication. And for Keone Moore, mould is also a factor to consider. Even in Australia, it's quite prevalent. I'm always really careful though, because I got caught out a couple of times where I'm like, oh, do you have any mould in the house? And like, no, no, no. Anyway, after having that conversation, they've gone home and found some and then like furiously started bleaching it and cleaning it off like, no, no, no. <laughs> so <laughs> whenever I ever ask a question, go, okay, well, if you do go home and find any, please don't clean it because uh, we don't want to make it more airborne. So really making sure that it, anytime I mention it, I'll sort of follow up with, if you do, this is what I want you to do. So how prevalent do you find that, that mould being a driver? Certainly in cases where they don't respond to treatment, that might be a key sign for me where I'm like, yeah, I see this treatment work, you know, the process in children. And if they're not responding and, they're, you know, maybe they're getting results but it's very underwhelming, then that's when I think, okay, there's something missing here, something that we further we need to understand about what's affecting this child. And Certainly, I guess that initial case taking is really important as well. When do they tend to get symptoms? Do they have a running nose? Do they have ongoing nasal congestion? There might be the little signs that might 
kind of tweak my interest in talking about mold. What are some of the other common drivers that you find if, you know, if that 50 to 60% don't respond and then the mold is not an issue, what else would you find is driving the, the condition? There's a number of different theories about what is actually going on with ADHD. Uh, certainly, I guess a consensus is that there seems to be low dopaminergic activity in the brain. So that's generally where I go to in terms of, okay, how can we upregulate that? So that might look like things like tyrosine. Uh, I am a fan of Bacopa in those cases. And there's some actually very interesting research on Panax ginseng in ADHD that um, I've been working with that with some children as well. So I guess looking at things that um, that increase dopamine, would that be something that you looked at if the nutritional deficiencies are corrected and you know, you've done all of that foundational work? Is that something that you would then look at? So with the functional testing, I should probably also mention that I do a lot of nutrigenomics as well. So I might be looking at the dopamine pathways as a part of that. So that's quite interesting. And if I find that they do have that genetic tendency to a lower res- dopamine receptors, for example, then that will inform my treatment accordingly. But I think there's also a place for just creating a healthy brain environment. So looking at our fish oils, really focusing on DHA. I always like to look at choline and in line with that choline gene SNPs as well just to think about whether that might be something that's going to create a healthier environment for that developing brain. And what about methylation? Do you find those SNPs to be a causative factor in many cases? So as certainly looking at the methylation SNPs is a big part of what I do for any child, to be honest, with a neurodevelopmental uh, presentation. And I think it's really important that we move beyond the focus on MTHFR I know that there is, that's obviously the most well-known gene SNP in the methylation pathway, but it's it's only one gene in that entire pathway. So making sure that we do look at all of the other gene SNPs as well. So MTR, MTRR, COMT, all of those can be incredibly important in terms of understanding each individual child and what they respond to. I look at that methylation pathway, I map out where they need the most support. So there's no, if I have 10 children come in with ADHD, it's 10 completely different treatments. There might be a process that I go through and pick out the bits of that process that apply to that child. But at the end of the day, if you looked at their treatments, they don't look the same at all. And just on your point about um, not just focusing on MTHFR, is there any other of those SNPs that are more implicated than the MTHFR SNP in your experience with kids with ADHD? I rarely find that it's MTHFR. It's more likely to be one of the others. So uh, I do see issues around B12 actually a lot more commonly. So NCOMT actually is the other thing. Just your normal biochemistry um, can tell you a lot. Dr. Frank Golick. You'll see most, I'd say 99% are acidic. Um, so they've got either a high um, anion gap or their bicarb's quite quite low. Um, so we want to see the bicarb over 27. We want to see the anion gap certainly below 12. Um, so you see those things. You'll sometimes see elevated liver enzymes. Um, that could be virus. It can be other toxins. Often you'll see low protein, total protein, more than just albumin. So that almost questions their digestion, especially their stomach acid. 
often some of them will have other electrolyte disturbances. As I say, iodine is a common deficiency. Iron is just so common, and it's hard to. Older children, I've given iron infusions. Um, they've been so low. I always worry because iron can certainly feed abnormal gut flora and can be constipated. A lot of these kids are constipated and also diarrhoea. And that's another thing, coming back to that behaviour, um, is if they've got a child that's extremely constipated with major faecal loading, they are a very disturbed child. And um, just emptying their bowel, I've seen, just cause amazing relief in the house uh, if this child is so much happier and, and uh, good. But they can block, seriously, get the plumber out, block the toilet, um, and still have miles of feces in their bowel. Um, so I'm never content. I often talk about what we call poo weekends, where the mothers um, can use magnesium oxide powder and vitamin C, uh, sodium ascorbate multiple times from Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday lunchtime, Saturday afternoon, and then we stop. And trying to empty that bowel is just an incredible breakthrough sometimes. It's getting back to the conventional testing, other things that you're really looking for on there. So I always check B12, folate, homocysteine. That gives me an idea. Um, of course, we'd have to do a methylmalonate urine to see what the active B12 level's like. You can do a figlu on, on an um, organic acid test as well. I always check um, iron, as you, as you can tell. I'll check gluten and tolerance. I'll check, uh, of course, the ASO and the anti-DNAs B for the streptococcal autoimmune antibodies. I do quite a lot of other tests that uh, are just standard tests, but they always give me some other tidbits of information uh, which you can read between the lines. So the corrected calcium is our best gauge of magnesium. So it should be over 1.4, uh, 2.4, sorry, 2.4 for corrected calcium. That gives you the best indication for your magnesium level, serum magnesium or even red blood cell magnesium doesn't really cut it for me because I don't think they really know what the range should be. Thyroid function test as well um, is very important. So the majority of these children are either got low T3 or elevated TSH. That's not an uncommon thing in children who have got normal thyroid levels as well, but that's worthwhile doing. So uh, quite common to have low levels or even sometimes occasionally high levels of antithyroid antibodies. So that's always giving me an indication of leaky gut and also aluminium and gluten. So often that's a gauge for me to see how much um, gluten exposure they're getting as well. What about heavy metals toxicity? We use the oligoscan here. I think the oligoscan is superior to using hair analysis or, or provocation tests with the urine. Uh, and that gives you a, a quite a good idea of the extracellular matrix levels of minerals, ordinary minerals and heavy metals. You know, it's often a classic pattern in most people of one of the front runners is usually aluminium and you can get various levels of cadmium, arsenic, lead, mercury. Sometimes mercury is not as high as you would think. So a lot of people in the early days of autism thought it was all due to mercury. I don't find that a common high level. Um, I think it's involved. I think aluminium, nanoparticle aluminium, which um, doctors can give to uh, patients, I think that's one of the most horrible things for the brain. And I think that can stir up so much microglial activation. Their brains often fire from nanoparticle aluminium. It's quite destructive on neurons, uh, especially um, if there's mercury with it as well. 
just a little tip there also, another thing that doctors give or patients can buy over the counter now is Clorsig eye drops for infection in the eye. That's full of thimerosal, full of thimerosal, which will go straight into the brain through the eye. And there's no warnings on that. Um, the ointment form doesn't have it, but the eye drops themselves do. And I find simple little um, use of nanoparticle silver drops as well in the eye can be just so effective and simple. There's a lot that we can do to control our food consumption, but often it's it's very difficult to, to control the environmental things, even the EMFs, you know, the 5G coming in. It kind of, it's kind of happening and we don't have a say in it. Um, what kind of advice... Do you, kind of advice do you give to families around these environmental toxicities? Uh, with the EMF in a house, if your house is up on a hill, you're going to cop more more of a blast from them. I think if you're not necessarily in the bottom of valley, but not up on the hill, I think that's one thing. If you can be in a semi-rural situation with the 5G, they've got to have the, um, the little distributors, you know, so many um, power poles away from each other. So I think a lot of people, there's an invitation to move a bit out here in the country. That won't remove it altogether. Some people will shield their house, of course, um, aluminium foil, and, and some people will use um, just little protecting, neutralising um, boxes to try and help in their house. Uh, watching Bluetooth and uh, Wi-Fi, I think turning off Wi-Fi, uh, parents who just want to still use it, I'll often say, get a little timer on. So it turns it off, say, at 9 o'clock at night till 8 in the morning. So at least it's not running at night time, not having a mobile phone in your bedroom. You know, all those little things that just they all add up in affecting those kids. We also have to keep in mind when handing out prescriptions the stress that the parents are under. And I think if you give anything more, if their parents out there listening, it'd be too overwhelmed. I'm sure they're already overwhelmed. <laughs> and I find that if you really stick to it, give it like six to 12 months, you will see the changes. So functional medicine is, I call it, it's like a marathon. It's not a sprint. So don't expect, it's not like taking Panadol and half an hour later, your headache goes away. It didn't happen overnight for this child. Like it could have started from being in the mother's womb. Maybe they had to go through a caesarean section in which you don't get the good bacteria from mom's birth canal. Uh, maybe they had issues with breastfeeding. So again, you're not getting enough good microbiome. And then they, they grow up with lots of infections, tonsillitis, ear infections, then they were on antibiotics. So, and then to the point of when they were diagnosed, when maybe they were four or five years old. So it took a while to get there. It's not going to get better overnight. So to me, that's like one of the major take-home messages that you've got to give it some time and persist. That's often a question you get. I know I get that. How long is this going to take to work? And it's hard to, I think it's our job as well to set that expectation. Because I've had patients that come for me for a cure. I'm like, no. And it's scary to work with these patients, uh, these parents, because they expect a cure. Then I'm like, no. That's a good point that you make about the stress in the home because it is a stressful situation for everyone, isn't it? And the more heightened that stress gets, almost the worse it becomes for the child. Yeah. And you've got to think of the siblings of the child. If they're neurotypical and mom and dad are spending less time with them, what happens to the family dynamics of that? Because I have a neurotypical son. He's like the middle child syndrome. Now grown up, he thinks that, yeah, mom, you never really spend time with me. I'm like, oh my God. 
But then the guilty mom syndrome sets in again. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we talk again to Dr. Frank Golick and Keone Moore, this time on PANS, Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, and PANDAS, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infections. We explore diagnosis and treatment. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. <laughs>